the known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. Tomb Believers, you're listening to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast, and you might want to crank the AC on this one, because we are still in the midst of Inferno. I'm Trey Lawson. And I'm James Dixon. And today, we are joined by a special guest. Uh, You've heard him on here before. Uh, We're always happy to chat with him. And uh, welcome to the show, Liam O'Donnell. Oh, hello. Hi. Hi. Hi and hello. (laughs) So uh, we, we did this a little bit with, with our previous guest on, on the Inferno uh, series. Uh, what's your background with Inferno and or X-Men comics from around this time? Oh, man, I was X-Men was the comic that I was about. I would buy other things often just on like a that cover looks cool or you know when when they had those discount packs where it's like we put a bunch of comics that aren't selling well in a pack for two bucks buy this uh but when it came to actual and the one on the front always looks cool and the one on the back exactly. always looks kind of cool and there's one in the middle exactly. that you don't know what it is exactly exactly so uh but x-men was what i quested for in fact for a long time X-Men was the only comic I quested for. So I might buy new issues of all kinds of random stuff, uh, especially once Image became a thing for, for for everybody. I was buying all the first issues of that stuff. But when it came to, like, I need a specific number and I'm willing to go to multiple comic book stores to find it, it was all X-Men. Uh, and what's crazy for me is we're doing this Inferno episode and somehow you found five issues of Inferno I had never read before, which is nuts <laughs> to me. Uh, though I though I will say I, I had the first issue of this Exterminators, so I think I did read it at least once previously, but rereading it for this did not remember any details. Like I was going through it going, I know this cover, but I don't remember anything that happens in this comic book. Uh, and I was always kind of like uh, unsure what to make of this group of mutants that were connected to X-Factor because while I did collect a certain amount of X-Factor, you know, Uncanny X-Men was really my my book, right? That was the one that I was going after. Um, I was actually collecting comics when X-Force became a thing, uh, but I didn't have a ton of New Mutants before it turned into X-Force, you know, like it, it, as much as I cared about Uncanny I wasn't really dipping into the other X-Books as much as I could, though I did buy a bunch uh, and we even talked about this before we were on mic, but like when it comes to Inferno, I really was thinking, oh, I got all I got all of the Inferno comics for the most part connected to the X-Books and I realized, oh, wait, I never really dove into Excalibur. It just wasn't nothing against, uh, you know, uh, Nightcrawler or whatever, but it just wasn't a book I was particularly compelled by at the time. Though now, 
it sounds like it probably is pretty interesting. I bet I would have fun with it as an adult. But at the time, it was like just outside of like, this is cool uh, for me. And that book in particular was coming so much out of the Marvel UK stuff. You kind of yes. had to have a different frame of reference for it than just Claremont's X-Men. Yeah, and if something about the, all the X books, including New Mutants, then the transition to X-Force, right, is they were gripped a lot more by these anxieties, by the anxiety of what it means to be a mutant in the world and all this stuff. And that just seemed to be a less common theme in Excalibur. There was so much more magical stuff and weird stuff, and that all seemed kind of neat. But I, at least at like 14, 13, I was less like, yeah, I need to get that. And more... I would occasionally because it looked fun, but I, it wasn't something I quested for. So since Trey and I were not reading X-Men at this time, uh, we have brought on various experts like yourself. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Yes. Onto the show. <laughs> kind of our thing to for fill this, us in, this series. <laughs> to fill us in on what's been happening to our married mutants in a little segment we like to call previously on X-Men. Oh, I pre- I mean, I appreciate that. I don't, <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I have a, a, a perfect memory. I, I have more of like a general scope. Uh, I, I think that the, for me, I felt the transition out of Scott's relationship with Madeline Pryor into him just being back with a resurrected Jean Grey was such a, as a teenager, such a psychotic decision. I think when you get to be an adult, you start to view narrative decisions in comic books as both creative and economic right like like you start to think like in practical ways like okay it's a new writer they're trying to reset the tone like you you start to see that stuff as a kid it just is a story you're just telling a story and at times the way i would describe the story to people it was almost like i thought i was describing real things and not a thing some nerd made up you know what i mean like this was like i was describing like like uh, actual current events. And so when suddenly Madeline is like doing her own thing and Scott's off with Jean Grey, I just was so confused by like, what is happening? How is this what we're doing here? Um, And then the whole, the, 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 uh, you know, when Inferno comes in and starts to involve a lot more Madeline as the, as the, uh, I guess it's Goblin Queen, right? And uh, taking the baby. And then there's all this like Mr. Sinister stuff. This was really a time where the X Men f- felt very menacing and also very sexy. Everything felt like very, like uh, every issue. I mean, you made a joke about things being hot, but I just felt like so many issues of the X Men just felt like everyone was sweating all the time and it was everything was very like intense. And then here comes Madeline, who was sort of like the human version of Jean Grey, just very uh, uh, white bread. Is that fair to say? Like, just just not exactly, other than her red hair, was sort of, her, her vibe was like girl next door. And here she you is in this. Jean Grey off wish. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and, and it's almost it's sort of the idealized version of Jean Grey that's sort of in the Mary right. Jane Watson mold. Yes, mm. yes, 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 yes. And so then she shows up as the Goblin Queen, and it's like your ex girlfriend became a sexy goth, and now you're, you're you're somewhat regretting breaking up. You know, it's like it very much had that <laughs> vibe. I, and I, I have sometimes shorthanded this aspect of the the X Men storyline as 
Scott Summers reaches the find out phase of his relationships. Sure. Yes. <laughs> um, um, and however, if- it is the official policy of Tomb of Ideas that we love sexy goth redheads. Oh, I mean, <laughs> as a kid, I was like, that was part of my uh, attraction to Inferno. Although, you know, another part of it was just like, this has echoes of the Mutant Massacre, right? Which like the the I was too young for Mutant Massacre, but when I started collecting in the sense of not going and buying new issues, but of actually going into the stacks and trying to find stuff, one of the first sort of runs of things I was trying to, to collect was the Mutant Massacre stuff, which I had totally missed, but was still resonating into the 90s, right? Like it had already happened, but it's still the the results of that storyline were still very present. And for me as a kid who was just getting into these kind of comics and had thought of thought of had thought in some ways of superheroes as soft, you know, like, you know, as a kid, I watched a lot of horror movies and getting into comic books. I wasn't expecting some similar uh, themes. And then here's, you know, Mutant Massacre was fucking dark, man. It was like a real intense, like narrative uh, going on. And so Inferno in bringing Bex, you know, and having Sinister be so present and even including some of the Marauders and also just this sense in which as Limbo starts to come through uh, into Earth, and we'll talk more about this when we talk about the issues, everything just starts to feel darker, right? That's the main effect is everything starts to suck. And uh, by the time I was reading some of these issues in X-Men, when the Inferno event was really at its full force, there was just like demons everywhere, people getting attacked. And there was a lot of like urban anxiety coming across uh, in a way that was even more present than in other Marvel books. And uh, uh, but like manifesting that into this really dark stuff. And I also liked the way that this was adjacent to all the stuff that was present with magic, you know, with uh, Ileana uh, uh, Colossus' sister. And yeah. I always thought as a, as a, as a character point, that was always weird to me. Like, okay, so here's the mutants. A lot of these characters make sense, but the two that were always insane to me were, uh, you know, Warlock because he's a techno organic alien thing, and uh, and Magic, who's just like, yeah, I was a kid, and then I went to Limbo, and now uh, I got a magical sword, and I can do teleporting and stuff. And there's a whole demon realm where I'm. Don't worry about it; it's fine. And it was such a random. It's like you know, uh, you know, Sam is just a rocket. Right. Like, you know, again, not to say that these other new characters weren't interesting in their own ways, but it just felt like with magic, somebody just went a little nuts writing magic as a character. And so here's Inferno connected to Limbo, but not really about her. I thought that was interesting at the time. Like I was really anytime comics like took an ingredient from another house and pulled it into a different book. I at the time that was that was why I read Marvel. Because it happens so much where different different deep cuts from other properties would seep into a new property and become an essential element. You know, uh, uh, the idea of like apocalypse is apocalypse. Also, apocalypse has a bunch of celestial technology. Okay. Uh, why is that there? Well, we don't really need that, but it's there. But I, at the time, I thought that those sorts of ideas were so interesting to me. And that that's really why I got so obsessed in that time period, collecting Marvel specifically. Very good. And of course, listeners, we are talking about this episode, Exterminators, Issues 1 and 2, Avengers 298, Amazing Spider-Man 311, and Daredevil 262. It is This is a chock-full episode, guys. This is what we told you. 
make sure you're hydrating. Make sure you brought some snacks. Uh, it is um, even spending uh, I, the whole summer on this event. We're having to pack these episodes pretty full of issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we say whole summer. We're, we're going into October. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I will say this. Considering this is we're in this inferno event, there is not a majority of demons in these books. We're we're really only dealing with like two issues of goblins and the rest is like just sort of the vibrations of what's happening at the time. Weird supernatural shenanigans. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So so let's take a quick break and when we come back we'll start with Exterminators number one. Do you like spooky movies? Hair-raising tales. Insightful criticism. Judgmental hot takes. Then you're going to love Horror Business, the horror podcast on the Cinepunks Podcast Network dedicated to all things weird and spooky. My name is Leo Donald. And I'm Justin Lore. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not-so-favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great, or maybe not great. <laughs> Whether it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products. Evil mutants prime their attack. As Juggernaut harnesses his battering ram, Magneto reveals his magnetic force. Lead the attack, Juggernaut. But waiting are the X-Men. Evil mutants. Wolverine flashes claws of steel, while Cyclops turns on laser power. This city is speed limit. And the giant apocalypse is power lifted by the mighty Colossus. Lost again, Magneto. X-Men and Evil Mutants each sold separately from Toybiz. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our first issue for today is Exterminators, Volume 1, Number 1. Uh, writer on this issue is Louis Simonson. Penciler is John Bogdanov. The inkers are Al Williamson and Al Milgram. Colorist is John Wellington. The letterer is Joe Rosen. Editor is Bob Harris. And we open with the demon uh, Nastir, who uh, we met in uh, previous issues last time. And his minions are all sort of weird demonic goblin creatures. They have been brought to Limbo, where uh, the the monstrous Sim is uh, conspiring to take over Limbo and uh, destroy uh, the Dark Child, Leona Rasputin's dominion over that dimension. And so Sim is forcing these goblins to retrieve 13 power-filled babies... Uh, that are going to be su- part of some supernatural rite that will allow him to uh, take control of Limbo. And so he banishes these goblins to Earth, where they are stuck until they are able to retrieve the 13 babies. They appear in a graveyard where uh, the, the graveyard attendant, uh, sort of humorously reading a Tales from the Crypt comic, he confronts the demons. They respond by turning him into a Okay, just to be clear here, the cemetery tenant is definitely William Gaines, right? Uh, yes, I, I think that's probably supposed to be. Uh, um, yeah, which for any of our listeners who don't know, uh, there's a whole history there of like banning comics, and yeah. in fact, and, and, and on William Gaines panel, being kind of unrepentant about the content of EC Comics horror books, yeah. as he should be, right. Uh, there's a sort of a famous anecdote where, like, a, a politician in 
a committee hearing, asked him whether he thought that uh, all of this sort of various gory, gruesome content was appropriate. And Gaines's reply was, well, in a horror comic, yes. To be fair to Gaines, he was hopped up on pills during that testimony. <laughs> <laughs> Good for him. Good for him. Uh, like they were like caffeine pills because he, he 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 stayed up all night worried about the testimony, and then uh, I think like the next day he's like, I don't want to fall asleep, so I'm going to take some caffeine pills, <laughs> which is just a bad idea before giving testimony to Congress. Although it's worth noting, on the next panel, the tombstone says "R.I.P. Frederick Wortham," yes, who was the um, fake pseudo psychologist who. Um, Started that whole hoopla. Yeah, he was the seduction of the innocent guy. Yep. Uh, anyway. And so, uh, in any case, the Gaines stand-in is turned into a demon and is recruited to help the, the goblins find these 13 powerful babies. And then the scene changes to where... Uh, which of the, these characters all blur together? Is that Rusty? Is Rusty the one who's arrested? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Rusty Collins has turned himself in from having gone AWOL back in X1 and... Not Rusty Venture. That'd be a very different book. Right, right. Uh, Rusty Collins, who has fire powers, uh, turning himself in and going to prison. He's refusing to register under the Mutant Registration Act. That's his act of protest. But because he believes in equal treatment of mutants, he is turning himself in to be treated the way he sees it as any other uh, person who went AWOL would be treated. Uh, He has this sort of poignant goodbye moment with uh, his girlfriend, Sally, codenamed Skids, and he is taken away. Um, Such an unfortunate codename. Am I, am, I, am I right that Rusty never had a codename? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't even like when he, like Raider, Raider? Later incarnations of the character, I don't think he ever had a codename that stuck. I think he's just always been Rusty, so which according, is strange. According to the Marvel Wiki, he briefly went by the code name Firefist. No one ever called him that ever. <laughs> no Which, one almost, ever. That's almost as unfortunate a name as some um, skits. Actually. Yes, yes. That's <laughs> they truly were made for each other at that point. <laughs> so Rusty says his goodbye and is taken away. Meanwhile, the rest of the kids are essentially pawned off to various boarding schools so that X-Factor doesn't have to deal with them anymore. Hardy and Leech are taken to a school for essentially children with learning disabilities, it seems like. Children who have things like dyslexia and and other uh, problems with reading and communication. Uh, And there they briefly encounter a character who will will become much more important later on, uh, Taki Matsuya who is a disabled kid in a really high-tech wheelchair. The rest of the kids, who are older, uh, that's uh, Skids, Richter, and Boom Boom, are taken to Warren Worthington's old school, Phillips Academy, uh, in New Hampshire. And so it's full of stereotypes of wealthy, pretentious, upper-class New England types. And it's pretty clear from the start that none of the mutants are going to fit in there. Um, we jump back to the school for Artie and Leech, where we learn a little bit more about Taki, who uh, seems to be some sort of engineering whiz. It turns out he's made a lot of the modifications to the wheelchair himself. Um, but whenever he's around Artie, his technology seems to break or fall apart or stop working, which seems odd. 
Uh, not not when he's around Artie, when he's around Leech. Sorry. Um, which seems odd, because, you know, Leech only affects mutants, right? Foreshadowing! <laughs> uh, and, of course, uh, after we see more of Boom Boom and Skids not getting along with the, the upper-class kids at their fancy boarding school, we see more of Taki, who realizes that uh, when Leech is around, things don't work. He blames Leech for his technology not working, um, but uh, he realizes... He's starting to figure out things about how he he makes his gadgets. Um, he wakes up in the middle of the night and finds goblin creatures trying to take Artie and Leech, and he realizes that mentally he can manifest new gadgets for his chair, that, that he can essentially take the mass of objects around him and convert them into other forms of technology. And so he makes a goblin buster uh, with laser beams and, and uh, a motor, and he zooms in and he tries to stop the demons, but he's unsuccessful. And so uh, Artie and Leech have been taken with uh, little effigies, little dolls left in their place. Of course, That's the adult... New. What's that? That's new. It they weren't new. doing that before. We, they weren't doing that before. Uh, although I don't know that we saw that many successful thefts by the demons before it was it was the the nanny character that was stealing. Oh, you're right. So I think this is the first right. time we've seen the goblins be successful. I like it. It's creepy. It kind of goes back to the whole changeling myth. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And of course, the adults don't believe Taki when he tells them what happened, and so he tries to call the older mutant kids uh, at their boarding school. And the snooty rich girl answers and refuses to pass the phone along. And so he goes out uh, alone. He transforms his wheelchair into a helicopter. Now that he's figured out that his powers can do that. And he, <laughs> and he flies off to retrieve the rest of the mutants. Uh, they sneak out uh, and fly away with him. And they engineer a jailbreak to get Rusty out as well, which doesn't seem like it will the best for him personally, but maybe it is, because the guards are talking about how they're going to throw away the key, so um, maybe his sort of uh, peaceful protest of turning himself in but refusing to register isn't the best course of action. Um, They all escape with Rusty and fly away. They realize that rather than the, the helicopter, they can go much faster by using Boom Boom's energy pellets as fuel, and end of this issue, they're just flying away. They've got Rusty. They convince him that they need to save Artie and Leech, and they fly off into the night. This is actually a lot of fun. It is fun. Like, it's... It is... It, it very much gives 80s kids movie. 80s teens movie. Sure. Yeah. L- a little bit sort of adventures in babysitting or something. Like, that kind of vibe. Now, part of the reason for that is because the Simonsons very clearly watched the Goonies before inventing Taki. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. He, he is definitely a kid out of those 80s. Uh, and to I'm the not point where he entirely is... sold on how his powers work exactly, but for the purposes of the issue, I'll go with it. I mean, it's much like those 80s movies. It's an awkward character. Taki's yeah. an awkward character, and it's not as dark as it could get. But <laughs> sure. it's there, there's a number of like character beats, less in this issue, more in the next one, yes. where I start to go, 
Okay, guys. All right. Can we not? Can we play this a little less where we're going? Because I feel weird about it. But there, there are um, some. They're fairly lightly handled, but there are a bunch of stereotypes bound up in his character. Yeah, and and I and I appreciate that they. You know, at the time they could have hit those a bit harder than they did, but they're still there, and I think it plays into the fact that they have not. I am convinced figured out how this guy's powers for it. Like, I right. just think that it, it, the the way that he is converting matter as as opposed to just making things, right. it feels like they just want to be like, well, he's like Forge, but he can't be Forge. So how do right. we make him not Forge? Uh, yeah, he just grabs stuff around him and changes the matter. Well, is that reality bending? Like, what are we talking about here? And on one hand, I appreciate it because I do think there was a moment in this era of comics where readers were demanding less scientific explanations for mutant powers. I feel like there was a moment where a lot of mutant powers, like you had to have all kinds of pseudoscience to understand how it worked. This is a time where it's like, I don't know. He makes stuff. It's cool. He takes stuff and then he makes more stuff. Like I get that, but it's a little bit firestorm from DC, right? Like you just kind of hand wave away the matter energy conversion of it all. (laughs) Yeah. And, 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 if if that's if he's at that level of converting things, couldn't it be a lot bigger than like turning uh, his helicopter he made into a rocket ship? Like it feels like he could do much bigger things, but they just don't need that narratively yet. So instead, it's kind of techno based a little bit. It it just seems strange, and I and I wonder to what extent they just hadn't really thought through that because they found him more compelling as a character and they were less worried about. So it's like on one hand, I, as a reader thinking, I don't think this, these powers make a lot of sense. On the other hand, I'm like, but I kind of appreciate that they're not obsessing over it the way that sometimes later that would become like a character's personality was that the author had thought up a cool power and worked out how it worked. And meanwhile, there's no character there. It's just the power, you know? And and there's also a certain amount of, you know, you could kind of no prize it as, well, he's a kid and he's into tech. And so that's how his imagination manifests those powers. One, 100%. 100%. It's just, there's also the whole thing about him having, you know, microchips in his legs and stuff. Yeah. Right. Also and, and, but, strange. But we're, we're all on the same page, though, right? That, like, if this was a movie in the mid-80s, Kei Kwan would totally have been offered this part. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and it's... Oscar um, winner. Yes. And it's important... <laughs> It's important to this theme of he's he's a character that people because he at times can maybe seem frustrating or annoying, people don't take him seriously, which is a very sort of eighties kids movie thing where it's like, oh, like they can just ignore him. But it, it is it is a theme in these comics that people who do extraordinary things don't necessarily believe in other people's extraordinary things so it's like you know i can tur- make fire out of my hands but goblins that's ridiculous right. it's like i just feel like if you were actually one of these mutants you'd be like yeah goblins ghosts whatever the fuck i'm on board whatever you say i believe because look at this shit <laughs> but instead they're all very skeptical like goblins what are you talking about and, and i guess it's important at this point that x factor are not present because any of them yes. would be like oh yeah like we know iliana we we know this kind of thing happens yeah goblins demons yeah of course i've, I've met thor like obviously right. you know right 
the thing about Taki though, he's responsible for I think one of my favorite scenes in this comic. Um, it's the the part where they pick up the older kids from the boarding school, and the, the, I, the way I interpreted it is like Taki's little helicopter is hovering like say maybe like ten fifteen feet off the ground and trailing on the ladder and just going like. At the slowest speed possible. Yes. And the cops just walking up to the ladder. It's like, um, what? <laughs> it's a little bit the 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 scene in uh, Superman two with the jailbreak with the the hot air balloon. Sure. And, yeah. And yeah, Otis yeah. is trying to climb the ladder and just keeps pulling the balloon lower and lower. <laughs> oh, although we should also talk about the real MVP of this issue, um, and of course that's John Bogdanoff. Oh yeah. Who. I opened up this issue. I'm like Bogdanov. Oh yeah, well, Simonson Bogdanov is such a great team. Like I, I always am happy to see the two their names together on an issue of any. And part of yeah, that's, that's me right. growing up a Superman fan in the early '90s, right? Yeah, yeah. Sure. This is the this is the Steel Team Trey. Yes, yes. Including the movie tie-in. <laughs> did Bogdanov do the movie tie-in? Pretty sure he did. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, this is a fun issue. It, it's, it, I think, uh, I was sort of musing to myself before we recorded that this is a weird moment in the Inferno event because it's kind of, oops, no X Men, like, <laughs> like all of these issues are sort of move are sort of going around what's going on with both X Factor and X Men. Um, they're referred yeah, sure, to, yeah, they're yeah, mentioned. Yeah. Uh, we're aware that they are somehow involved, but aside from cameos by Jean Grey and Bobby Drake in those opening panels, we don't really have them for the rest of these issues. And yet, the, these two Exterminators issues still very much feel like X-Books. Like, they're still fun on that level. I think, too, that, like, at least for X-Factor readers, these characters feel familiar. You know, like, they feel like they are connected to them you know um and at least there's some we've we're getting goblins right in the in three of these issues things are just sucking in new york more than usual and it's only because (laughs) it's only because we are in the know that we're going well i think there's a reason for that folks uh but you know it this theme gets even more as as y'all read forward you will see that this inferno effect does not just affect inanimate objects or even like you know street gangs even the heroes themselves get affected which i think will be interesting uh to see you know into the future uh, and that that was truly said like a true Philadelphian. This thing's sucking more in New York than usual. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's a fun issue. Um and we really can't talk about it too much without going right into ex- Exterminators 2. So Right, because these are very much ahead. continuations of the same story. Let's go ahead and take a quick break and we'll be right back with our look at Exterminators 2. Hey kids, comics. It was the dawn of a new age of comic book podcasting. Hey Kids Comics was a dream given form. A place where two generations of comic book fans could work out their differences, peaceably. It was a humorous place where nothing was sacrosanct and it was our last, best hope for joy. But all things end. But from endings can come new beginnings. This is the return of a comic book podcast. The year is 2023. The name of the show 
is Hey Kids Comics. Michael and Andrew are back with an all new look at old comics and all old looks at new comics. You can go home again. Hey Kids Comics, monthly from Two True Freaks and wherever you get your comics related podcasts. Hey Kids Comics! Steven Spielberg presents The Goonies, a Richard Donner film. I don't want to go on any more of your crazy Goonie adventures. The Goonies rely on three things. Good men. Good women. It jumped out from the bushes and almost killed us. And good gadgets. So join the adventure with The Goonies. Rated PG. Starts Friday, June 7th at a theater near you. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, and our next issue on our Inferno coverage is Exterminators, number two. Um, continuing where we left off last time, same creative team, Louis Simonson, writer, John Bogdanoff, penciler, Al Milgram, inker, Joe Rosenletter, colorist is John Wellington, editor is Bob Harris, Tom DeFalco editor-in-chief the demons are carrying Artie and leech back to the cemetery after kidnapping them them in the previous issue unfortunately for the demon minions that have kidnapped them they are not young enough for the big bad demon boss dude's taste which is just disgusting he should be ashamed of himself um and in fact he doesn't even think they have power until he realizes that oh no that's leech's dampening field making it seem like they don't have power um but Artie is able to send out a distress call hoping to get x factor to come to their fa- to their rescue but instead uh getting the attention of the somewhat older x factor charges um who have taken flight in what is basically a red flying batmobile uh, so, um, sorry, Grant Morrison, Batman and Robin, uh, exterminators did the flying Batmobile first. <laughs> um, anyway, they, thanks to Taki inventing GPS, they make their way towards New York. Uh, but first they have to make a stop off to get, um, some provisions. This includes vandalizing a perfectly good vintage Pepsi machine. Uh, and stealing some fruit pies. Uh, they also get some clothes, but that's a little bit later. Um, we segue to a young, attractive 80s couple in their home. They, they seem like a very nice couple, which is a shame because the husband gets his throat ripped out a few panels later by some demons who's there to steal their baby. Um, they're also kind although, of yuppies, though. Yeah, they're a little bit... They seem like nice yuppies. I gotta say, they seem like nice yuppies. And props to Mom, she gouges a demon's eyes out. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, motherfucker, I'm stealing my baby. Alright, so yeah, there's that whole scene I talked about where the kids steal some clothes. Although, technically, Taki wires some money into the owner's account. So, I guess it's not technically stealing. Um... But they use the what they find at the clothing store to make ad hoc superhero costumes for themselves, which they are a choice. <laughs> they are they are a very eighties choice. Rusty um, comes out okay. Russ, Rusty comes out looking Flash Gordon. That's why you say he looks okay. <laughs> but yeah, uh, hmm. um, they finally make their way to New York, but they try to, where they try to call X Factor. 
But of course, that doesn't work because phone lines are down, New York has gone crazy, and X-Factor's a little bit busy right now. Some more children are stolen, um, including, dun-dun-dun, Taki, as the rest of the, now what they're calling themselves the Exterminators, are fighting the demons trying to take him. Uh, and then we leave in a cliffhanger with the demons talking about, hmm, maybe we're going to eat some kids. Eat some, eat, eat some babies. Well, and, and specifically, the reason they take Taki, even though he's too old for what they've been instructed to do, is he mentioned his computer having a spell checker. <laughs> and they, this, need, that... they need help processing their magic spells. The, the comedy of errors aspect of this issue is kind of fun, but also kind of like, really, this is what we're going to do. When it first happened, I was like, hey, hey, that's funny. The fact that it carried through the whole issue until the end, I was like, what? Okay. All right. I guess I guess that's what we're going for. A running thing in these early Inferno issues. This was true with the stuff we the sort of prelude stuff we covered last time. The goblins, demons, whatever you want to call them, are dumbasses. And that's yes. really the only reason that the heroes have any chance is because of how dumb these demons are. Yeah, um, it, they, they're henchmen. They are henchmen, it, and they they have average henchman intelligence. Uh, below, I would say even below average in some ways. You know, would you say Imperial stormtroopers are smarter than these demons? Some are, yeah. I would say that. Maybe not. Maybe um, not the one who walked into the, the door. The stormtroopers but, uh, <laughs> can look at Brogu and say, "Yep, that is definitely a baby." That's fair. The <laughs> demons don't fair. know what a baby is. They have no clue. <laughs> I also just—it's it, it, a little thing. I really love in the final panel of the issue, Artie and Leech like taking care of the babies. Yes, I agree. Yes, it's very cute. Um, like they just seem like such nurturing characters throughout both of these issues. Yeah, I had forgotten before reading this how this era of Boom Boom was very annoying. She's just really annoying at this point uh, because later on, I actually came to like the character the way that she was written later, where she still had some attitude, but you know, was a little less goofy. Uh, at this point, it's all jokes and her, you know, counting down her bombs, and that's about it. And I don't I don't like her very much. She bums me out a little bit. Yeah, this is this is the version of this is the version of Boom Boom that evolves into like the next wave like the sort of self parody kind of version. Yeah, 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 yeah. In- including just like random theft and vandalism. Like th- she steals like a whole armful of hostess fruit pies and destroys a Pepsi machine. And there's this really weird scene, like, really kind of disgusting scene, where she talks about man, I wish some of that soda was still there so I could wash down these hostess fruit pies with it. And, like, they they are not even shy about the fact that this is a Pepsi machine. It's not like, you know, some weird, like, pseudo-brand name cola. It is outright Pepsi Cola big bold letters oh my god did they sponsor this issue um and then just the idea of washing down the hostess fruit pie with a pepsi sounds disgusting it sounds like diabetes in in a mouthful which is why i'm gonna do it right now um i went (laughs) i got went and got a delicious hostess fruit pie i believe this one is cherry um and i'm going to try washing down washing it down with some delicious 
Pepsi Cola, which I also have here. I should point out, I am not usually a Pepsi person. Um, not even a Pepsi household. Uh, oh, God. Well, this is amazing, Parker. And, of course, the all the food talk <laughs> is sort of one of the other areas where Taki sort of veers into stereotyping a little bit with his, uh, I wish yep. I had some tofu and miso. And I think that it's supposed to be a combo joke about health food, but yeah. also a little racist. Well, but it's he's like, also, like, wealthy is the thing. Right, right. And at one point, do they suggest that his family owns Mitsubishi? Did I read that wrong? So, so he says, does the name Mitsubishi mean? I'm not sure if that means that his family was connected to them or that they had one. I don't know. Oh, I think it's uh, they're connected. If he's yeah. just got all yeah. this, you know, I, I just, it just wasn't clear from there. the writing. Sure, that's fair. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here comes the Pepsi. <laughs> oh, my, oh, my gosh. Uh, Raver man. Oh, Jesus Christ, that's disgusting. <laughs> I was right. Not a good um, combo? No, not a good combo. <laughs> Which I think, children, tells us the important lesson for this episode. <laughs> Don't take dietary tips from Boom Boom. Well, and, and that's also not. just the sort of teens in the 80s were written as these kind of eat whatever junk is at the mall food court kind of thing. Like, like that's just part of the teen identity. And to be fair, you shouldn't take, you know, dietary tips from podcasters either. Yeah. Um, which reminds me, Liam, would you like to tell them about the new Cinepunk supplements? <laughs> <laughs> They're made from bone marrow. <laughs> the bone marrow Chinese orphans. <laughs> But, but yeah, I think you're right. That, that This era of Boom Boom, I, I guess the writing era is impulsive. Like, immature and impulsive. Yeah. And I I agree with you that, that the version of her that I like best is the version that's kind of grown out of that. Yeah, where she still has an attitude. Well, I'm not even talking about the most modern either. I don't want to pretend that I fully sure. understand her portrayal. But I mean, like, later when she's, like, in X-Force and stuff, she's still, yeah. like, a, a kid. She still acts somewhat impulsively but she's it's less grating here it's just a little more it feels a little more grating to me. like her trying to blow up the skylight to get into the clothing store is just a bit much is it just me or does boom boom just get like pushed to the side at some point in late 80s to make way for jubilee um sort of that they kind of feel different i feel like that that's when boom boom gets a little more edge to her character yeah, I think there's, and also the time periods are confusing, right? Because I don't think Jubilee come. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm pretty sure Jubilee comes in uh, pre Genosha. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And doesn't X Force happen post Genosha? I think. Mm-hmm. So that I think at right. that time, at that time, Boom Boom's around, connected to the New Mutants. But you know, I, I think the Cable era of New Mutants was weird right the same way that that era of x-men was weird like nothing was obvious you know like the x-men don't exist you know they live in australia then they then they all go all over the place then they're kind of reunited in space and there's the brood and then then there's the genosha stuff so i think like for me when when boom boom is uh both a a part of X Force and B deeply in love with Sam. I think that's like a, an era that I got to know her character a bit more. Whereas she, yeah, I don't know that she was a big focus. Uh, but I also think like the writing of that time period 
a lot of what was going on with the New Mutants and with X Factor uh, uh, was detached from what was going on with the X Men. So Jubilee kind of first came in as a separate character in her own world. Though I honestly forget how she ended up in Australia, like because she was from Southern California. Yeah, I guess she followed them to Australia somehow, and then she ends up saving the crucified Wolverine. If if folks remember that classic, well, you know, uh, Wolverine nailed to the X uh, uh, issues of X Men. Yeah, my my. My t- my sort of memory of that era is so fuzzy in part because it gets conflated with like the the other media interpretations. So like when I think of where did you right, really come yeah. from, the first thing I think of is like the first episode of the cartoon, which is a very streamlined <laughs> version of her just sort of falling into the lap of the X Men team. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she basically is Wolverine's sidekick for a long time sure. before the so, X-Men get reconstituted. If you want to talk character replacements, Jubilee really sort of took Shadowcat's spot more than anything. Oh, ah, totally. That's true. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I mean, because Wolverine, uh, uh, in order for him to be the dark edgelord that everyone wants, we need him to be friends with a young, young girl. But I will say, unlike Shadowcat, Jubilee also had some edge, though, right? She was meant to represent a sort of delinquent kid who could do whatever she wanted. You know, it was sort of a a youthful entry to a book in which all the characters had started to feel very adult, right? Like all of none of the X Men felt young; they all felt like angry adults, right? And And so, Jubilee, which was sort of the younger book, evolved into X Force, which suddenly was led by like a fifty-year-old guy who looks like muscular Clint Eastwood. (laughs) um again bogdanoff's artwork is fantastic like the great thing about john bogdanoff is he is a art chameleon like his art style changes to what's appropriate for the scene like there's a scene really exaggerated and cartoony but it can also get a little more realistic and, and naturalistic when it needs to right there's a scene in the first issue where you know um Rusty is surrendering to the military police, and he and Skids had this like r- sad romantic scene between two of them, and it's straight up lifted from Jack Kirby romance comics artwork. Oh sure, it, it, where Skids, you know, is doing the oh no, how could you, and just crying into her hands thing. Yeah, yeah. And then later, um, when they show up at the prep school, the prep school preppies are oh, so the 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 like. The chin like jutting out that all of them have, almost like a National Lampoon cartoon. You know, um, it's very, very well done. And and then there's just other parts where he's like straight up, you know, Marvel style of the era. So Absolutely. it is kinetic. It is dynamic. And I I really really enjoy John Bogdanoff's artwork here and he goes on to develop this more like we the Superman books as you remember there's that great cover where Superman is meeting all the different Batmans during mm-hmm. Zero Hour and he perfectly portrays all the different versions of Batman on that cover great cover and yeah I mean I, I it's I don't know if there's a whole lot else to say about this issue other than it, it does seem to be <laughs> trying to set the table for this to become either sort of a, a, a new version of New Mutants or, or some other variation on the same kind of slightly younger mutant team or something. Uh, yeah. I, I don't... I really don't remember where 
these characters went next. This is a four-issue miniseries. So for what it's worth, all four issues of this miniseries are part of Inferno. We'll be cover the, covering them all. Um, well, I think I think Rusty and Skids never find a home. They're always bouncing from different comics. They're you know they're involved with New Mutants. They're involved with X Factor. They they I think they are connected at one point to the Hellfire Club. There's a whole bunch of like random stuff, and it always bummed me out because I always found Rusty as a more interesting fire user than um oh what's his name. Pyro, uh, Human Torch. Yeah, Pyro, Pyro thank you. Uh, yeah, well, Human Torch, that's a whole different thing. I mean, mutants. When it comes to mutant stuff. Okay. You know, and I get that, that the Pyro thing is interesting, where he can't make fire, but right. once the fire exists, he can play with it. Okay, I guess that's cool. But Rusty just is like, he's a powerhouse, and yet so rarely do I feel like that character... And I get it. Skids, I mean, besides the name, Skids is also kind of lame as far as a power set. I get why people had trouble figuring out what to do with Skids at the time. But, like, Rusty, it always seemed like he was this cool, you know, fire user character. And so few stories made use of him in an interesting and fun way, at least to teenage me. I wonder if I reread some of that stuff, if I would like the way that they never really have him go off, per se. But it just felt like there weren't a lot of uh, times where I felt like he was utilized very well. And in fact, I don't remember him coming back in any sort of interesting way until later when him and Skids get sort of uh, indoctrinated into the Mutant Liberation Front in uh, X-Force issues. And that all kind of hit me as lame, too. So I, I don't know. It's it's kind of a bummer. Like, reading this is fun, but there's some part of me that kind of felt like those were two characters that, like, didn't really... They, they served a purpose, especially for X-Factor. They created a moral conundrum for that team as they were trying to figure out how to be X-Factor. Uh, but I don't think that they ever got their own kind of time in the sun. And for a while, they killed Rusty off. Uh, yeah, I forget how came, he died. But he he since came back, because everyone came back because Krakoa, but... Right, yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, and as far as why this book happened, I think it's very much the, hey, New Mutants is popular, let's do another X spinoff focus on teen heroes. That does seem to be and, the impulse, and this is sort of the era where if you put a title that starts with X on the cover, then it's probably going to sell okay. Yeah. Although, Liam, it's funny that you bring up, you know, grab bags, because, of course, not only do we have our grab bag episodes where we basically go exactly off that conceit of, you know, the two good issues on the back, uh, either side, and, you know, one crappy one in the middle. Um, <laughs> random. Random in the middle. <laughs> random in the middle. Excuse me. Random in the middle. It's not crappy. I am Usually. pretty sure I got this issue as part of a grab bag at one point. <laughs> <laughs> in like the early nineties, it, it does seem like prime like comic grab bag fodder. Um, in that it's an X title, but it's not one of the big ones, so it's not super collectible. Right. Yep. But yeah, it's I the early nineties, so anything that has an X on it is. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, for for whatever reason, I think that this era of X Factor, where they are traveling around on the giant ship. Uh, I already wasn't that excited about. Uh, I have a bunch of those issues, but it, it just wasn't where my thought sort of was with the X-Men. And so this as being a, just a spin off of that 
really it just I, I I definitely have this for the first issue of this but I don't think I have the whole miniseries and it just wasn't that interesting to me even though uh, when I was going back and collecting a lot of this uh, later 80s stuff it was when I liked I did like Boo Boom as a character because by that point X-Force had kind of premiered like by the time I was going back to refine a lot of this era of comic books it was in the 90s when I was also buying new issues of x-force and you know the two team x-men and all that stuff so i don't quite know why this never hit me but reading it now it's fun i'm curious how this miniseries ends off i i actually haven't read it so i don't know uh but the thing for me though that is going to be a theme for all these issues is like inferno minus Madeline Pryor, especially sexy Mark Silvestri Madeline Pryor, is just not Inferno for me. So it's like it's cool, but we're not doing the thing yet. We're not in the heat of heat of the moment, if you know what I'm saying. In a way, this feels even more like table setting than the prelude stuff we did last time, because Madeline was at least in the issues last time. Yes. I will say that, you know, I really enjoyed this issue as an adult. But I have a distinct memory of when I read it as a kid, thinking it was boring as shit. So, take that as you will. If you are reading comics for big, cool battles, both of these issues are not chock full of action. They're fine, and I think there's fun character beats as much as there are slightly weird character beats. Uh, But it's not like... Oh man, it, it, some real badass stuff happens. It's like you know, if you're if you're twelve, just looking for awesome fights, that's not what you're going to get in these issues, you know? Right. Yeah. If we want badass, awesome stuff, we have to go to our next issue, right? Where um, where which... Inferno continues. That's <laughs> right. So we're going to take another quick break, and we'll come back with Avengers two ninety eight right after these messages. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Someday I'll fight evil. Whoa! Are you ready to be an Avenger? To be an Avenger, you must be strong, smart, quick, and true. Avengers assemble. Avengers. Old Run's cannon lights up. A is for action. Wonder Man's ready. Ant-Man's mini jet is set for action. Ant-Man extends. Captain America's droid explodes. The shield will protect the Avengers. Take that, Ultron. The Sky Cycle soars into battle. Falcon, surprise attack. This bird brain. Hawkeye's quick drawing arrow will punish evil. Ah! The Avengers, united they stand. Each sold separately. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. And uh, Liam, I think you uh, said you would take our next issue here. Oh, yeah. Uh, Avengers 298 from... Uh... December 1988. I was nine years old. Uh, the Mighty Avengers Disaster. Uh, we've got writing here by Walter Simonson, so that's great. Other Simonson, pretty cool. <laughs> uh, this says layout. This is interesting because I didn't notice till now. Layouting by John Buscema. Uh, finishing Tom Palmer. 
lettering by Danny Lopez, coloring by Elliot R. Brown, Mark. Uh, I can't even read that. Is this a Grunewald? Grunewald, yeah. Editing? Cool, cool, cool. And of course, Tom DeFalco, editor in chief. Uh, so we see this, what is basically the cover of a newspaper here that just says, you know, disaster. And we pull out, and it's our man, it's Jarvis. <laughs> I guess a lot well i'm assuming people listen to this podcast too but in case we do have people who aren't familiar saying this is jarvis is complicated right because <laughs> a lot of people know jarvis as like a ai from the mcu film so there is an edwin jarvis who it was the butler for the avengers who my understanding did a lot of different things for the avengers right like he was a sort of like interesting figure in the life of the Avengers. But when this opens, uh, Jarvis is at home with his mom. Uh, and side note, Jarvis always gave me kind of British energy. You know, like, I thought of him as, as a British man, but his mom seems like a real New Yorker. So this is strange. I don't know what the relationship <laughs> is here. But he's home with his mom because the Avengers have disbanded, thus firing him. Now, I was not an Avengers reader at this time, so y'all might have more of an insight here. When we say the Avengers have disbanded, is this this is a full disbandment? Is this like a fake thing? Like, where are we at with the actual state of the Avengers at this point? Um, they were being led by Doctor by the worst Avenger, uh, Doctor Druid, at this time. Oh, jeez, okay. And there was some Kang shenanigans where it's revealed that Doctor Druid was being controlled by um, Romana, basically. Okay. An evil Romana, not the regular Romana, evil Romana. And as a result, the messed up shit that, you know, that Druid had the Avengers do and Romana controlling the Avengers had the Avengers do meant that that team all basically quit in disgust. And just to give you a quick sense of where the Avengers were at in 1988, the lineup in the previous issue before this one was Thor, She-Hulk. Black Knight, and Dr. Druid. Whoa. Yeah, that's not exactly your uh, your your uh, gold team or whatever. You know, that's not your right. A-listers, I guess. Not Earth's Mightiest. No, no. So this was... So at this point in publication history, is there a West Coast Avengers or that doesn't exist yet? Yes. That does exist. Strange. Okay. All right. I, I mean, I, I'm not trying to act like oh it's so weird because i was reading x-men at this time so like obviously <laughs> well, that's the, every I marvel guess book had its own who, weird shit for people who came on. to marvel through the mcu it is worth noting that at this period in time virtually nobody cared about the avenger like <laughs> yes even correct. the big the big names like captain america iron man like these were not marvel's biggest characters no. no they stayed in print they were still around and they had their fans and there are some very good runs of both Captain America and Iron Man from this era, but the money maker for Marvel, the thing that that people really paid attention to, were the X books. Yeah, and right. But even, but even the X books, right? Like at this is the point where the X Men are operating in secret. They're not like yeah. big heroes that everybody knows in the world. They've become almost covert in a weird magical sense. This and is the, a strange the, time. And the core X-Men team, I think, is still presumed dead by most of the world. Yeah, they haven't. So this is, for, for people who don't know, this is when they have been um, they faked their death and they're mm-hmm. in 
uh, I believe they're fully in Australia. They've defeated the Reavers the first time. Yep. Uh, but they haven't yet been talked into going through the Siege Perilous the second time when they all get reborn in new sort of identities. Um, so it's still a strange time for the X-Men. I mean, they briefly had, you know, Magneto was the leader. Charles is gone. He, they think he's dead, but he's off in space or whatever. Like there's all, uh, it's just a strange time for what is the most popular. It, it, it's, it's one of the weird things about this time in comics, which is by the way, when I got into the X-Men, I mean, one of the first issues of X-Men <laughs> I bought was them fighting the Reavers for the first time in Australia. And it's like, for me as a reader being trying to find my way through this book at one of its strangest times you know it's it was a weird thing but uh i think that people maybe don't have an idea that like doing that sort of thing like really destabilizing your team was thought to be a money maker like that was how you made money i mean even in this issue there is a cameo at the end where we are presented one of the most classic Marvel characters and Avengers characters, but he's in his alternate suit because at this time he is not that person, right? He's not that identity in itself. He's he's taken on a new sort of persona, and uh, that's weird. But that was what was going on, you know. That was a common thing, and I I uh, I don't always know. I mean, I think anyone who's has a vague idea of comics knows that disrupting big things whether it's killing superman or whatever can often bring in eyes and that's sort of a gimmick but the it was so normal at this time to have teams that are being put through the ringer and falling apart or heroes who are in some sort of anti-hero moment that it was starting to become the cliche of comics that everybody was the dark version of themselves, which maybe explains why Inferno was sort of the move, right? Where the whole world well, is getting especially, corrupted. Right? Especially the Avengers was such an unstable team from the beginning. Like that classic yeah, lineup yeah. didn't last that long. No. And it quickly went to the, the kooky quartet. And then from there, it went into the sort of version that had vision and, and some of those characters. Like Avengers changed so much over its run that by this point, like, yeah, sure, break them up, do whatever. Like, it's not like the core team had been the same for very long anyway. I mean, I only dipped in and out of the Avengers. I probably only had a few issues, and yet almost every issue I had, it was always them doing Avengers things and then also facing just, like, real-life problems. Like, there were fucking lawsuits, you know? There was issues the, around... the government is investigating them, or... Yeah, there's there's always, like, practical issues as well as, like, aliens and time travelers and shit, you know? Which is kind of cool, actually, uh, but at the time... I never found when I would pick up an issue and check it out, I never found a team that felt reliable, which I guess is weird to care about since, you know, at this point I'm reading the X-Men and they've faked <laughs> their death or whatever, but there's still a group of characters that I'm kind of invested in. And with the Avengers, I, I always was like, Oh, they're going through some bullshit again. Like it just never felt <laughs> anyways, let's keep going with this issue. Sorry to derail sure. us here, but yeah. uh, so Although it is fair that like the wackos are the best Avengers team. Let's be clear. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> Well, so right now, the Avengers, as far as this issue is concerned, the Avengers are uh, Jarvis, a a later middle-aged man, I guess, living with his mom because he doesn't live at the Avengers mansion anymore. And due to uh, what we've started to see happening with Inferno, which is that um, inanimate objects are becoming untrustworthy and unreliable, and his mom needs to watch her wrestling, uh, as well as something else. I forget what the other thing was. It was a daytime soap. 
Yes, yes, yes. So Jarvis, being a, a good son and a real problem solver, if you've been reading The Avengers, you know that, uh, he goes to figure out getting his mother's TV fixed. And of course, all the TVs are messed up. And so that doesn't work out. And then he starts a variety of misadventures that are all kind of setting the stage for the idea that the effects of the Inferno event are turning the whole city, as I said earlier, a little less, uh, a little more terrible than they usually are. Uh, that includes um, the subway malfunctioning and almost killing a uh, an innocent woman uh, who becomes sort of interested in Jarvis. Uh, she She's both uh, beautiful and nerdy, which I guess is supposed to be up his alley or whatever. Uh, and they the, the train stops and they make their way out of the train. She gives him uh, a little kiss, which he is dutifully embarrassed by. Uh, and as he sort of tries to make his way around the city to... I don't know, maybe like uh, uh, de-stress, honestly. It felt it was funny reading this because as someone with ADHD, I was like, oh, Jarvis is trying to reset his dopamine levels, uh, which yeah. I don't know if that's fair. But, uh, you know, he's going to go to the art museum. Art museum's closed. But to be fair, it's not really closed, right? The doors have shut against everyone's will and people are trapped inside. But Jarvis just keeps it moving. He doesn't want to bother with that. Then uh, he's going to find a movie theater. And instead, he saves a woman who's almost crushed by bricks. And he's kind of helped by someone who is that Peter Parker? Is that yeah. what I'm supposed to think? Yeah, yes. Peter it Parker uses Parker. his spider sense and like directs the umbrella to block all the bricks. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, I I thought that's what was happening, but as a not dedicated Spider-Man reader, I'm like, I'm just going to assume that's Peter Parker, but maybe I'm wrong, and they'll, they'll know more. Uh, and things really hit a. Um, a climax where we start to understand that this world is really being literally corrupted by supernatural forces when he sees a very angry New York man, so standard New York man, uh, <laughs> gets 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 mad at a pay telephone, which for younger listeners, you used to have to pay quarters to a telephone to make a phone call. And the phone lashes back. It tries to strangle him. And then our man Jarvis, like, deals with the phone. Like, he makes a deal. Like, you make this phone call right now or I'm going to bust you up. And then the phone call goes through. And and he leaves a call for someone who this uh, the comic starts this thing where it's coyly suggesting that this is Captain America. But like we all know this is Captain America, you know, also various uh, computers in Captain America's apartment, I guess it is, start to attack him for no particular reason other than, you know, Inferno. Uh, Jarvis then goes to meet Captain America at what looks like the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, which is interesting. And he finds the same woman he had saved earlier is being crushed by a car. Um, she turns out she's been following him, which he finds not as creepy as he probably should. And one of these cars turns into a strange alien looking robot and tries to murder them while he's very bravely for a frail old man with a slightly tougher umbrella than you'd expect uh, fighting a giant robot. Uh, he is saved at the last moment by our uh, trench coated figure that we already know is Captain America. And then the big reveal, of course, is that it is Captain America, but he is in his U.S. agent persona, right? Which, wait, was it called? The was he, called? he just yeah, called the himself captain. the yeah. captain. Yeah. But, but that, that became point, the that became the outfit for U.S. agent, right? Yeah, the guy who will be yes. U.S. agent is currently Captain America. Right. Okay, that's what I thought. And then uh, also at this point, he often, in the Captain America books, he had the Falcon with him, but he had a different name too, right? I forget what his other persona was. No, that is not the Falcon. Oh, okay. Who's um, the guy who's with him? 
All right, I'm so confused. You're, you're thinking of the guy who's with Battlestar. John Walker at this point. Yeah. Who is uh, Battlestar after they realized that Bucky was a problematic nickname for a African-American, um, African-American hero. Uh, wait, no, but who's when I mean, when Captain America is operating as the captain, he at least in some of the issues I read, he has two folks with him. And I thought one of them used to be the Falcon. But am I crazy? That's not who that is. Um, one's Nomad. Oh, Nomad. Um, yes, yeah, yes, Nomad. yes, yes, yes. But then who's the um, other guy? Um, D-Man. D-Man. Okay. 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 And Nomad's Anyways. girlfriend who does have a code name, but I can't remember what it is. Right. So, so uh, you know, uh, Jarvis has successfully gotten the captain into the fray of whatever's going on in New York, which we know is Inferno, but they, they're not sure what's happening. And then uh, this uh, bookish yet uh, hot blonde lady wants to go home with Jarvis. And so uh, they walk off into the night. I guess they're going to have tea or something. I don't know what the plan <laughs> is, but they're, they're going to enjoy their evening together after almost being murdered by various inanimate objects. And and that's the Avengers. It's 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 kind of a, a big deal because suddenly the captain is back in, in his new cool outfit. Uh, but it's also like kind of not an Avengers comic other than Jarvis. So, yeah, there's the issue. Uh, I got to say, it's it's this sort of thing where we're going to take a character that people know and love but it's not a main part of the book and kind of focus on him for a little bit it's kind of fun I think it's kind of fun uh, but I think it's the sort of thing you can only get away with because the Avengers are not particularly popular at the time so it's not like people are reading it going where the fuck is She-Hulk god damn it like I just think that like at this point you can kind of do whatever you want and I think it is a interesting introduction to Inferno however read together with these other books I feel like we're getting a lot of Inferno edging right now and not a lot of <laughs> Inferno to completion sure. <laughs> that, that's that's fair um, uh, you're yeah, a word we're, we're, again it, Inferno is such a big event and it ties into basically every other book Marvel was putting out and so I guess you almost have to do like the prelude in every single one of those titles but it feels like the way that they're doing it for me now that I'm reading these other titles is just like, hey, we get, we got to tie in all these other books because X-Men's killing it and we want our other books to be killing it. So we're going to tie them all together. But other than just the general idea that New York is going to be become like a demon kingdom. Right. For the most part, they don't actually have any ideas on how to tie in these other books. Like, there's no actual connection to these other books and what's happening in Inferno. Right. It's, it's, not just, like the, it's not like the lead goblin is popping in and, and like enacting some part of his plan. Yeah, and I don't know if they will at some point. As I said, I haven't read, so maybe these books do get pulled into the main narrative. But, you know, I've, I've read all most of the X books related to this thing. I don't remember a lot of other Marvel characters showing up, though it has been... Sure. It, so it, Almost it's, 20 years since I read any of them. So <laughs> My understanding is you, you can mostly just read the X books and get the event. But yeah. like there's at least two more issues of Avengers that tie in. Including um, 300. Yeah, all the way up to 300. Wow. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, well, and, and maybe the event, while it might not tie into the main narrative in those books, the event might have an effect Sure. on the main story of those books which is still cool if yeah. you're a dedicated reader but I, I wonder to what extent y'all since you're committed to reading all these are going to finish some of these books and be like man that really didn't matter at all like that's a possibility right that you just sure. you put the side note Inferno because you hope it'll sell but meanwhile it doesn't actually affect the larger story you're telling I mean I personally just knowing the nature of 
Web of Spider-Man. I'm skeptical of Web of Spider-Man tying into much of anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. Uh, Because because Amazing, Spectacular, and Web of all have Inferno tie-ins. Yeah. And really, I mean, we'll talk about this uh, thing with the Amazing Spider-Man issue, too. This doesn't affect the main narrative of Inferno. But it is a darn fun story. Right. It is very fun just watching Jarvis, who, you're right, is a character who doesn't get enough love anymore because, you know, the films have replaced him with a robot. Although, I do like that, you know, it, they have kind of gone back and fixed that, like, hey, the AI is based off a real dude who was Howard Stark's butler. Sure. Although that's all Marvel television, and the degree to which it's canon is... He's in Endgame. You're right, he is in Endgame. I forgot about that. He is in Endgame, so he is he is canon. Um, I am the Avengers fanboy on this podcast. I, uh-huh, I have read uh-huh. all of the Avengers um, from the J- first Stan and Jack days all the way through the um, Buzek Perez run. Um, and Jarvis is one of those characters you love. You love him. And he is British and his mother's British, too. He just moved her to New York be closer when, to, to be closer to him. And his mom has gone native. <laughs> Like, apparently, apparently. I'm pretty sure that's the case. I'm pretty sure Jarvis is British, and he moved his mom out to New York to be close to him, and she's just gone full native. She's a woman after your own heart, Trey. You know, she, she, she wants her wrestling. Absolutely. And she wants it now. Understandable. Um, Understandable. Yes. Uh, I do love that the biggest tell that it's Peter Parker is that he has a thing for redheads. Yes, he recommends to Jarvis that he go see Who Framed Roger Rabbit because that Jessica Rabbit is woof, um, which, you know, yes. <laughs> Something about having co- characters in a comic book admit that grown adults want to fuck a cartoon is kind of awkward, but... <laughs> also that, like, a page later, Jarvis is like, huh, that guy was right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of right there with you in terms of this era of, of Avengers. I... I know things that came a little bit after this. I know things that came a little bit before this. But again, when when the lineup is the list of people I read, like nobody's buying that book. Right. That's so funny. Like this book doesn't even bother to really say why the team is disbanded. <laughs> no, it's it's one hundred percent like, hey, this is just where we're at. It's yeah, whatever, like the Avengers you know? broke up. You get that, right? Like, <laughs> like that's understandable. So weird. It is funny how all of these like major things that were going like the Inferno event and like the iconic Steve Rogers picking up Mjolnir, like all of that stuff happened when he was wearing that outfit. Oh wow. I did not know that actually. Yeah, the, there's an issue of Thor. It's the first time that Steve Rogers picks up it, the price for that issue spiked when Endgame came out. Um but it's right. funny because it's like him holding the hammer, but he's in the the black and red costume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a couple issues where he's in this costume, and it took me a while when I was a kid to understand that he wasn't Captain America anymore. I thought he just yeah. updated his costume, and then I'm reading it like, wait, no, I think something's happened. But well, this I just. Was like the second time he had done it, too, because he did the Nomad thing first. Right. And then that, that costume spun off into a different character. And then same here. He he gets the black outfit, and then that costume spins off into a different character. 
And also, Liam, you mentioned that, you know, everybody's getting an evil version of themselves here. That happens twice to Spider-Man in that era. Yeah. Yeah. He, he gets Venom and he gets Doppelganger. Yep. Who is into it, who is in across the Spider-Verse. Yes. Yes. I remember he is the reading one of those who are all the Spider-Men in across the Spider-Verse things. And that was one of them. That I was like, oh, I don't know that one. Right, okay. I'm like, I'm sorry, guys. Doppelganger spun out of one of the Infinity stories, didn't it? Like Infinity Wars yeah. or something? Infinity, Infinity War. Yeah. Or is it Infinity Crusade? Fuck, it's Infinity. Because there, there, there are issues where everybody has a doppelganger. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only one that stuck around was Spider-Man. Because, you know, if you've got webs on you, we can try to franchise you. Well, and so, because because uh, he's in Maximum Carnage. That's where I first encountered yep. Doppelganger was Maximum Carnage. And he makes that in the game. He has that sound. Yep. Yep. But yeah. This is just a fun issue. It's it's light. It, it it's very much of a piece with the Exterminators issues. In that, if what you're looking for is like I octane comic book superhero action, it's not that. You get a little bit of it at the end. Like they they give you some Captain America at the end to justify it having Avengers on the title. But but it's mostly just sort of fun goofy yeah it is it's a fun fun issue that shows off my boy jarvis and uh glory garson there actually does make return appearances she has at least two or three more appearances yeah i think until jarvis dumps her for aunt may apparently something like that i think her final appearance was a busiac issue yeah it's just Venice. hey we got these two somewhat older than average characters in the book let's have them date each other right but I mean, it's kind of fun. <laughs> Again, it, it doesn't, as we said, it doesn't really do a whole lot to tie into Inferno aside from the appliances sort of going haywire. Yeah, it, it ties in more to the Captain storyline, which I forgot was going on this time. And, and, and it's sort <laughs> it of amazing. And, and, and it's just sort of cleaning house a little bit to make way for the, the new team of Avengers that's coming. Yep. Which, we, which we will see because that's also an Inferno tie in. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, it is one, it's, it's also one of, the, one weirder, of the weirder lineups. Yeah, one of the weirder Avenger lineups. Um, sure, sure. Spoilers. It's it. It has two members of the Fantastic Four in it. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, I don't know. Anything else on this one, guys? Um. No. I, I also enjoy Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Again, relatable. I understand. Like, I, I, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got. Yeah. So maybe we should take another break and uh, then we will come back with next Amazing Spider-Man number 311. Right after these messages. All right, Josh, we got to do this ad. We got to come up with something. What do we want people to know about Cinepunks? I don't know, man. I feel like they should know everything about Cinepunks. <sighs> all right. We're underachieving overachievers convinced that we know a thing or two about movies. Romance and adventure by the light of the silver screen. Is non-judgmental movie criticism a thing? Not really, but we love you anyway. We love cinema, whether it's high art or low trash. Cinepunks, we're elitist, but only about real nerd shit. Liam and Josh, we have two microphones and the truth. Spawn is America's number one comic book, thanks to you. So, I started this company to make the toys that you asked for. Spawn Violator. I hear the competition's flying around. They could be any place. 
Tremor, Overt Kill, Medieval Spawn, The Cloud. And they come with comics! Nice toys, kids! Nice try, guys. Spawn from Todd Toys. We're out to plaster the competition. Welcome back to Believers to our next installment of our summer-long coverage of Inferno! And our next issue, we are looking at that whimsical wall crawler known as the amazing spider-man issue 311 the return of the man called mysterio although the actual title of the uh, book is mysteries of story is mysteries of the dead and we see the amazing spider-man coming upon oh um right on this one is david mcclaney um some artists I've never heard of called Tom McFarlane. Uh, yeah, I don't Rick, think he'll ever amount to much. Not with this artwork, no. Um, Rick Parker on letters. Bob Sharon and Evelyn Stein on colors. Jim Salakrup, editor. And Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. Uh, we get a point of view of the amazing Spider-Man as he is coming upon the New York Public Library just as the famed lions on their steps are coming to life and attacking pedestrians. Uh, Spider-Man makes quick work of the lions who even though being they have been shattered are still twitching which makes them a bit queasy um, but he does find more standard uh, opponents in the form of a mugger named Peanuts Mulroney uh, who he has busted just a couple weeks ago. Mulroney is mugging a nice young couple um, which Spider-Man brings a halt to just before the wall he is standing on comes to life as a walking giant and stomps around the place Uh, Spider-Man is able to defeat the wall giant but not before it brings a smashing fist down on one of the previous mugging victims killing the young man um, after the young man had, had tried to help Spider-Man in the fight, um, he returns. Spider-Man, I mean, returns home to his supermodel wife um, to get some comfort from her, um, which you know um, fans hate. And uh, why would we ever marry Spider-Man? It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, fast forward the next morning to Empire State University where Spider-Man is distracted by the death of the civilian and ends up leaving class because he can't focus. Um, but of course, he later outside runs into Kirk Connors. We check in with some of the rest of the supporting cast, including some people named I don't recognize, like Dr. Swan. Um, and then we go that night to Mustang Ed's, which is hosting a publicity event for a jeans company that Mary Jane models for, uh, which gives us Mary Jane and Peter in very 80s cowboy costumes. Um, At the bar, um, a roughneck um, who I believe is called Al, um, who apparently is an actor, is angry with his agent that he didn't get him a bigger part in a recent production. And decides he's going to beat up his agent. Because that's how you get more work, kids. Beat up the people who find you jobs. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Solid, solid plan. 
Again, yeah. this is New York. <sighs> Sorry, New York listeners. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I used to live there. I get to Let's <laughs> see. I'm the only person who hasn't been been to New York, and I'm the only person defending it on this show. What's going <laughs> on here? Um, Peter quickly subdues um, the roustabout, um, and Mary Jane takes it up to the largest balcony in history <laughs> um, to um, console him and tell him, hey, it's not your fault that guy died. It was his choice. If you hadn't been there, he probably still would have died because he's tried to help people, just like you might someday. Da-da-da-da. Um, but... When Spider-Man goes back to get his camera, which he left behind at the scene, because he'd been so distracted earlier, he realizes there's no debris from the fight, and he realizes that, hey, this all might be an illusion. And if there's illusions, there's most likely Mysterio. Mm. He finds Peanuts and um, shakes them down until he reveals the villain's location, he tracks him to a um, disused movie studio in town where apparently they are filming Starfight 4, the recurring sequel. Mysterio reveals himself, including some really nasty-looking um, John Carpenter's The Thing-type aliens for Spider-Man to fight. Um, and Mysterio tries one more time to guilt Spider-Man, but Spider-Man's having none of it. He very quickly... Uh, says welcome to reality pal and beats the crap out of Mysterio um, <laughs> Spider-Man yeah uh, Spider-Man returns home to Mary Jane uh, explains all illusions I guess all the craziness will stop just as the elevator we saw in the first issue of, it, of our pod, of our coverage of Inferno eats the janitor from that issue uh, we then go back uh, to Harry Osborn waking up from a dream about the Green Goblin and then going to look in on his sleeping infant son and saying, I allowed the past to screw up my life before, but I won't let it affect my son. Uh-uh. No way. Which, if you know anything about Harry Osborne's history, oh boy! And of course, the Hobgoblin is watching from outside. Yes. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Um, speaking of issues that have nothing to do with Inferno... This might be the least connected to the event of any of them. Yes. At least, like, the Avengers issue needs the events of Inferno to spur it along. This in, one... In fact, it's kind of a fake-out, because from the way the issue starts, you think that the big brick monster is another of the manifestations of the Inferno energy. Yes. And then the rug gets pulled out from under you, and it turns out, well, no, the only the only things from Inferno that really matter are... The, the New York Public Library Lions, which, by the way, they have names. Uh, did you know that? The, the Lions outside the library? Patience and Fortitude. Oh, oh. wow. Uh, but, but the Lions, uh, the fact that the air conditioning and the phones aren't working, that MJ mentions, and at the end, the, the elevator eating the guy, which Spider-Man doesn't even really know about. And that's it. Quick Those question. are the only Inferno things. Isn't it the library that Jarvis tries to go to in the uh, previous issue? It's the museum. Yeah, he tries to go to the museum. Yeah. See, I thought there was a nice synergy there, but never mind. Because um, I think yeah. this this issue, I think, is happening a little before that one. If we're to take that elevator to be the same janitor that we saw in the previous episode, then this issue is probably yes. taking place a little bit earlier. Well, no, I think because previously we saw the elevator eat the family. 
And now then also, we see him. Doesn't the janitor get eaten eventually too? No, I don't think so. Or does he so, just look at it to. skeptically? Yeah, he just he's got the headphones in. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And of course, that is, we, we are referring to Uncanny X-Men number 239 there for right. our Love and Monsters keeping track. Um, but even Spider-Man speculates that, hey, those lions might have just been another illusion from Mysterio. Yeah. Which actually makes more sense because in order for this plan to work the way that Michelinie has done this here, Mysterio would have had to know Inferno was going to happen. See this as an opportunity to fuck with Spider-Man. Hire that that mug to um, bait Spider-Man. Create the illusion of the young couple and the rock monster and everything in, ahead of time to trick Spider-Man and then carry it all out. So to contradict what I said a minute ago about this being the ver- being set further in the past, if we take this to be sort of in linear continuity with the other issues we've talked about, then if these weird happenings in New York have been going on for days, if not weeks, then that is something he could do. He says that he had spotter teams stationed for days uh, on the lookout for Spider-Man doing Spider-Man things. So if that's the case, then maybe Mysterio did... It wouldn't be the first convoluted plan like that that Mysterio has done. That's fair. But that said, I'm (laughs) I'm usually not a fan of a Mysterio fake out. Like that's that's always an unsatisfying resolution. Yeah, this is this actually is not the first time this week you and I have both both gone. Oh God, damn it, it's Mysterio. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Foreshadowing our listeners to an to an episode coming out next month. Yes. Um, (laughs) That said, I actually do like the McFarlane art. It's it's over the top and it's not especially realistic and it's not even necessarily consistent. But I like how expressionistic it is. It sets a tone so, really well. I'm sorry, but looking at this artwork, it really makes me wonder why everybody spent so much time in the early '90s slobbing Todd McFarlane's knob. Because, uh, like, I don't know. I like it. I I like the the sort of contorted poses that he does for Spider-Man. I really like that POV shot in the the first splash page. And please pardon the the, the very colorful language there, folks, but that's what it was like in the early 90s. People thought the sun shone out of Todd McFarlane's ass. I'll say this. I I mean, if you make me choose between a McFarlane issue or a Liefeld issue, I'm going to pick the McFarlane. Well, yeah. But I mean, if, if we're talking about things that were big in the 90s. But, like, he's not even the best artist in this episode. Sure, sure. No, it, it's not my favorite art out of any of these books, but but I, I like it for... Honestly, my least favorite part of the art in this issue is the, the brick monster. I think it's kind of boring. It is. It is. I... I... I don't. I, well, I, I actually, so I want to agree with you that I like the way that he draws Spider-Man. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'll say, I'll agree with that. I, whenever he's drawing any human who isn't in a costume, I think it's wrong. Like, it's <laughs> yeah. not just that I don't like it. It's, like, incorrect. Like, I, if he was my student, I'd say, try again on the people. I feel like you haven't figured out what people look like. So there try to do the people here. again. I'll say this. I don't, I don't like his MJ. There is a panel here where Peter Parker's face looks like a bag of mashed potatoes. <laughs> I think that's true. Like that's 
that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know that he... There are aspects of his art that I like, but all of it feels a little rougher to me than what I... Because I remember him being considered the best. And Mm -hmm. now I'm like, I don't know what we were so excited about. You know, I don't know what it is that everyone was so stoked on. Whereas maybe this is my bias. I still like Jim Lee's art. Like I still go back to Jim Lee issues or Mark Mm -hmm. Silvestri issues. And it's not necessarily my favorite style now as an adult, but I like it. It looks cool. I'll also say this. But I don't get what McFarlane it was. This issue in particular is McFarlane inking himself. I think in this era, he was better when he had an inker. Like somebody else going over and finishing his stuff. Okay. Like because then you get a little bit more polish to it. Sure. Uh, I don't know. It's again. It's it is a tie-in that is not essential to Inferno. Sure. In, to the point where it's not even essential that Inferno's happening for the story to happen. It, it is telling that the most consequential Spider-Man tie-in to Inferno that we're talking about this episode is a cameo in the Avengers issue. Yeah, yeah. And I would argue that's a more fun Peter Parker moment than anything in here. Although, I will give it points for the marriage. Sure. and, and I miss and, the marriage. And, and those scenes, I think this issue is fairly well written, even when the art is not doing the book anything. Um, like I say, I don't like the way McFarlane draws Mary Jane in this issue, but all of those scenes of her consoling him are very much the sort of reason why I liked issues where they were a couple. Yeah. I think that makes sense. It, it isn't the the thing they fell into in the 90s where it's just, why does my husband have to be Spider-Man? Oh, I'm so worried about him all the time. Oh, why is my husband Spider-Man? Oh, right. I hate you, Spider-Man, Peter. What about me? Like, such a lazy portrayal of Mary Jane. That very much goes against the type of character you see even in this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but yeah, I... I how much more there is in terms of Inferno, especially to say about this one, because again, it's sort of a fake out. Most of the issue is not Inferno. Nope. But it's just don't worry, listeners, because there are plenty more Spider-Man issues coming up in this. <laughs> there are a astounding number of Spider-Man issues in Inferno. <laughs> it's almost like the top-selling non-X book at Marvel was a Spider-Man title or something. And uh, he had three different titles at this point. Yes. Yes. Um, but speaking of weird tie-ins, ah. we're going to go ahead and take another quick break, and we'll be right back with, I think, an issue a lot of people are looking forward to, uh, and that is Daredevil 262, Right at, which I've got things to say about right after these <laughs> messages. Daredevil, the album. 20 brand new songs featuring Evanescence. Plus, more new music from Fuel, Nickelback, The Calling, Hoobastank, Moby, Drowning Pool, featuring Rob Zombie, Chevelle, Saliva, and more. Daredevil, the album. 20 brand new songs. CD in stores now. Although Luber can't change the way your home gets dirty, it can change the way your home gets clean with energy-efficient deep-cleaning Luber Upright. On sale now during the cleanup on Luber sale at Kmart. 
The new Lead Upright with 15.5 cleaning efficiency rating and 8-foot cleaning reach is only $99. And the Legacy Supreme with 17.5 cleaning efficiency rating, attached tools, and see-through door is just $179. The future of cleaning is yours during the cleanup on Hoover sale, now at Kmart. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our final issue for today is Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, Volume 1, Number 262. The writer on this issue is Anne Nascenti. The penciler is John Romita Jr. Inker is Al Williamson. Colorist is Max Scheel. Letterer is Joe Rosen. The editor is uh, Ralph Macchio. And cover date on this is uh, January 1989. Our title... I found me in a gloomy wood astray, which is a quote from Dante. Mm -hmm. And we open with Black Widow and Karen Page and uh, some kids making their way through the streets of New York. And as with all of the other issues that we've talked about, New York is weirder and crappier and more sort of aggressive than usual. Um, yes. So a, a gargoyle falls and almost crushes them. Uh, they, one of, uh, Karen gets snagged by the turnstile as they try to get on the subway. Uh, the subway train kind of tries to eat them. Uh, it's all very unpleasant. Meanwhile, elsewhere in Manhattan, um, Mary Walker, uh, a.k.a. Typhoid Mary, is contemplating suicide to, to end the... the Reign of terror that Typhoid Mary has sort of been exacting over her life, and while all of that is going on, yet in a, yet another location in New York, Daredevil is lying injured, dazed. His costume is ripped. A vacuum cleaner is nearby. The vacuum cleaner becomes possessed by the evil energy of the Inferno event and begins gradually riding toward him. Um, as all of this is happening, Daredevil has a vision of his old mentor, Stick, who uh, encourages him to heal, to get up, to find the will to continue living and fighting and doing what he needs to do. Meanwhile, the vacuum cleaner continues to aggressively move toward him. Um, Black Widow and Karen and the kids get get off of the subway and uh, try to uh, check in with the police to find out if they've located Daredevil. But because of Inferno... They're dealing with all kinds of calls about killer phone booths and vending machines and cars without drivers attacking people. And so they don't have time to look for Daredevil. Sorry, but we're busy. Um, and so Karen and Tasha and the kids leave again. Meanwhile, the vacuum cleaner seems to have morphed into some sort of demonic creature. It has like spidery legs and a long tail um, and is uh, now sort of aggressively perched on top of Daredevil as his vision of Stick used to encourage him to fighting. Um, Natasha and Karen and the kids visit uh, Matt Murdock's free law clinic, which is uh, in rubble from a previous fight. Um, and a nearby radio, like an old boombox, turns on and, and uh, starts loudly announcing all of the various problems and disasters going on in the city. Uh, and they're not able to turn it off. Finally, Karen shouts at it to shut up, which causes the radio to shut down. Um, the kids are about to get into an elevator when Natasha realizes that something, 
finally, somebody realizes something is going on with all of the electronic devices and appliances and things. <laughs> and right. so, as the doors close on the kids, Natasha rushes over to try and save them. Uh, she has to use her various Black Widow gadgets to scale the side of the building and go into the elevator shaft from above to rescue the kids. Um, she ties them up to herself and shoots her, her widow line up to the, the ceiling to hold them in place as the elevator crashes down below. Um, the vacuum cleaner is still attacking Daredevil. It's choking him. Um, he is crying out for the vision of Stick to help him rise out for his parents. Typhoid Mary, uh, or rather Mary uh, Walker, I guess, uh, continues her existential crisis on the edge of the bridge. Um, she sees Daredevil down below uh, and goes down to check on him. Daredevil comes to his senses, sort of, and fights off the vacuum cleaner and smashes it to pieces. Uh, and the resulting explosion seems to trigger the personality shift in Mary, causing Typhoid Mary to emerge. Uh, and so she produces a machete. Uh, and so just as Daredevil is starting to regain his senses, he is confronted with uh, one of his worst enemies. I mean, this is a comic that I've read. I like this issue. <laughs> I, I, I know you do. <laughs> I know you do. And I like... I don't know. Maybe, maybe like you know, everybody's talking about. Oh man, the Daredevil issues of Inferno. The Daredevil issues of Inferno. Maybe my expectations were brought a little bit too high. Well, so the the reason people are like that is because of how weird and offbeat they are, and how unexpected they are. I mean, yeah, I suppose like, he gets so. There is something. By a vacuum someone, cleaner. It's awesome. <laughs> it is somewhat amusing to watch Daredevil be attacked by a vacuum cleaner. That is somewhat amusing. Oh, oh, God, my vacuum cleaner's not going to... Wait, no, sorry, that's my Roomba. Uh, and, and also, James, I, just for the record, you are not the biggest J.R. Jr. fan. Yeah, that was my next point. I am not the whereas, biggest fan. Whereas I like this era of his work a lot. I like the era before this. Sure, when, when he's doing more of a imitation of his dad. Yeah, because I like his dad's work. So. Sure, sure. Um, uh, once I, he becomes his own artist, eh. this is also my favorite look for Black Widow. I always liked the uh, the the gray bodysuit with the high collar and the, the spider. Yeah, 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 really? yeah, yeah. Really? Me too. Yeah, I think I think this is like the the, the look for her. Yeah. Okay. I like that this issue more than the other two issues is ramping up the inferno-ness of it all. You know, like the the point here is that the presence of limbo in this realm is making all of New York become more hostile. Uh, a, a thing which maybe Daredevil is going to be accustomed to or or able to fathom in some way. Uh, and so I, I appreciate that this does that more, whereas the other two issues, um, the Spider-Man one, which I was kind of met on, and the Avengers one, which I very much enjoyed, neither one served the Inferno particularly well. This one, while it doesn't have any direct demons in it, I do get a vibe of like, yo, things are really sucking. Although the constant theme of 
aggressive phones is weird to me. I don't know why. <laughs> I get that like New York has lots of phone booths is a thing that we're all supposed to know about. But uh, but the fact that that's become such a, a vibe and all these like, you know what the demons would really go for? Phones. It's like, so okay, yeah, It makes watch. sense to me, less so much in the physical threat, but it makes sense to me in terms of pre-internet, pre-cell phone, it's cutting off communication. Sure. Sure. Oh, totally. I mean that when they're becoming monsters and attacking people. That's, that's a little, a little weird. <laughs> that well, it's it's not weird in one issue, but that each issue there's like also phones. Hey, yes. could you tell them about the phones? The phones are doing things. Uh, the part of this I liked was actually in the subway where we see these like I mean, first of all, there's a lot of for those of you out there who enjoy a certain era of exploitation films because of their um, urban panic, you know, the general feeling that every city is you're about to be murdered. That's the vibe here. Like this, maybe this is a Daredevil comic. Maybe this is a comic version of the movie Vigilante. I don't know. <laughs> but all you There's know a great is that scene in there where somebody just chucks a hypodermic needle. Yes. yes. On like, the subway. A, like they're playing so darts. Good. And the kid's going, why'd they throw that needle at you? I don't know. <laughs> that's New York. Also, right? it sticks into a, it sticks into the pole. That's a metal pole. Yeah. There's no <laughs> speed at which you can throw a hyperdermic needle that's going to stick into a metal pole. But that's what happens, and it's pretty great. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't name the kids. They're they're Butch and Darla. Um, they are actually they originated in Longshot, which was another Andesenti title at the time. Um, oh, I just I just assumed they were Matt Murdock Biblos. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, they are members of like a, a gang of kids that live in Hell's Kitchen that uh, end up for a while they had powers because Mojo mutated them because again they debuted in Longshot. <laughs> so, so they're not Matt Murdock's bastards children. No, no. Uh, in fact, like they showed up, like they were involved with the New Mutants for a minute, um, but they eventually well, because they were because they were Hell's Kitchen based, they started showing up in Daredevil. I should have figured it out. They're not blind. Ah. <laughs> I'm sorry. But yeah, no, I I like how weird and and kind of abstract a lot of the stuff in this issue, like the the visions that that Matt Murdock is having and the sort of interplay between what he's imagining and what's really happening with the vacuum cleaner. That he's in this sort of literal fight for his life and he doesn't even fully realize it. Uh, I like all mm-hmm. that stuff. I think my issue is I'm just not a fan of Dark Daredevil. Like, I know that is what everybody considers the default Daredevil. But, of course, my favorite Daredevil run is the Mark Wade run. So, so Liam and I were talking off mic about this, and I also tend to lean toward goofier Daredevil. But I also think this issue is goofy as hell. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. Uh, like, um, the, 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 the darkest sort of grim dark moments of the issue are the stuff with Mary. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Everything else is kind of silly. And, and again, like Liam was saying, the urban panic of what's going on with Black Widow and Karen, and you know, the, sure. But um, even that li- is so li- exaggerated that that you can't really take it seriously. Yeah. Although they do just do some tie-ins to some stuff. For example, the 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 um, sex workers that we see recognize Karen. Sure, sure. And that ties back, and we'll tie into later. That goes stuff back going to the Frank Miller stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's. But I, I like all the action with Black Widow in the elevator. That stuff's cool. Um, the the sort of goblin faces drawn into the darkness of the elevator shaft. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I just I I had fun with this. 
Um, it, it may be because, you know, I read this somewhat late at night, so my brain's like, okay, gotta read this issue, gotta read this issue, I wanna sleep. And also might just be the fact that I'm coming into it not reading the previous Daredevil issues sure. and just reading it as part of Inferno. I also am very much on the record that the end of Senti Daredevil run is underrated uh, and is really good just overall. And uh, mm-hmm. and and this is I'm wanting to say fairly early in that run. Um, she took over Daredevil um, after Frank Miller, and yeah, she took over in like 236. So that's not that long ago. This is very early in her run. Hmm. Okay. And I It's I always, not terrible. No, and I also always kinda liked putting Black Widow and Daredevil together in a book. Like I like that vibe too. So I think if this felt more if this was th- this feels like a segment in between things, right? So as a non invested reader of the comic, like not a big Daredevil fan, I'm not gonna love it because I'm not pulled into what's happening at this point. I would need the issues around this one to maybe yeah. decide like yeah okay I, I, i'm curious about this this i, I will itself, say I'll, i'm I'll not say, I, we, it doesn't we really mean needed like a caption box or or an editor's note or something giving some sense of why daredevil is beaten all to hell and barely conscious and fighting for his life and everyone thinks he's dead right yeah 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 and it's it goes back to the old saying every issue is somebody's first sure like Daredevil doesn't appear for a good portion of this issue. This is true. Now that said, Black Widow was a fairly common supporting character in Daredevil for a while, like going back to the seventies. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm not faulting Natasha here. I love Natasha. So that we spend the first several pages with her makes sense. Yeah, I, I just I do think that a caption or an editor's note or something just to fill in some gaps would have been helpful considering that there were probably a bunch of people who bought this issue because it said Inferno continues on the cover. Right. I mean, I'm just, I'm not a universal, like every issue you got to make sure it's all laid out. Like I get when you feel as a comics writer that you're in the middle of something and you don't want to, you know, derail that vibe. But I will say that you do risk the thing that this issue does, which is while I'm sure it's keeping a lot of regular readers in suspense in a way that's really useful. I just don't care enough to keep right. going. You know, I'm just not pulled in enough to be like uh, the oh, wait. Side note: Why did the vacuum look like it had the techno organic virus? That's the part I was confused about. Don Romita Jr. I, I, that's just John Romita Jr.'s sort of very sketchy style at this point. And it's, today, I, and, and and also because we don't really get a good. It, it's. Almost every time it appears like that, it's part of that sort of washed out, all monochrome vision kind of thing. There's that right. There's a couple panels where it's not, but I think because we're meant to understand Daredevil is still existing in that vision space, it still is not fully colored in. So it's a okay. combination of uh, Ramita's art style plus the choices made by the colorist. I just think that in a world where we're part of the Inferno thing and one of our major characters in Inferno has the techno-organic virus, we should be a little more careful how we draw this. Sure, yeah. That's just my feeling, which is kind of my feeling on the art in the whole book, which is parts of it I like and parts of it I'm kind of like, it's fine. It's just like, I'm medium on the art in the book. I think it would also be more fun if the vacuum cleaner 
continued looking a little bit more like a vacuum cleaner. Yes, agreed. Uh, it could still have the legs and the tail and everything, but still more obviously vacuum. Yeah. The, the thing is, Trey, I didn't realize it was a vacuum cleaner until you said it in a summary. Huh. Well, you do sort of I mean, see it transform over the course of the book. Again, I was very tired. <laughs> <laughs> and I was still wondering, look at these kids. Kids. Right. The the kids are a little bit because again, I, I sort of had to look them up because they don't even originate in Daredevil from somewhere else. And they just get passed along to different Marvel titles Seems as like they it. see fit. Um and like I say, yeah, I think their first appearance was by the same writer. So there there's probably had sort of a vested interest in keeping those characters going somewhere in the Marvel universe. Trey. Yeah. Are these kids dead now? Um that is a possibility. Uh, so Butch has 18 appearances, um, and last appeared in the Nocenti Daredevil run. Well, no, actually, Gregory Wright wrote a Daredevil annual, but yeah, we're talking like early 90s was the last time they really showed up. Yay. So I don't think they died, but they just stopped showing up. Okay. It's sometimes, sometimes, sometimes limbo is better than death. I mean, and I don't mean (laughs) like, you know. I don't mean Ileana's limbo. I mean, like, you know, comics limbo. I think they're out there where someone could potentially bring them back if they were so inclined. I'm not sure. I don't know enough about them to know whether that's even a good idea. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it it, it is kind of weird that this is an issue. Well, maybe not weird. The most Inferno thing about this issue is that the villain of the issue is just kind of all the weird stuff happening. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Um, like, Typhoid Mary manifests on the final page, but really the the antagonist of the story is the weird limbo energy. But I like that because it, it feels they push it. It's pushed harder in this issue than the other two yeah. so that it feels more like, though not directly Inferno, I believe it's part of the the setting of Inferno, whereas like the Spider-Man issue, it, it's not oh, an yeah. Inferno that, That's issue. the thing, that's is I wanted that that aspect of it in the Spider-Man story, uh, instead right. of it all being Mysterio. Which, it's both in that it story? It's, uh, uh... Well, in, in this issue, it's it's all the limbo, except for Typhoid Mary at the end. Like, it's all sort of the, the weird manifestations of stuff. So, Daredevil's perception of what's happening is weird because he is near death and, and hallucinating. But that vacuum cleaner is trying to kill him. Whether it actually looks like this weird monster or not uh, is maybe debatable, because I I think we're meant to question to what degree we're getting Matt Murdock's subjective experience here. Um, But that appliance has come to life and is trying to strangle it, whatever it looks like. Yeah. Anyway, um, I think that does it for our look at Daredevil, maybe? Yeah, sure. It's, it's, it's like I say, I like it. It's one of those things that you don't have to read this issue to, to continue following Inferno. But as someone who likes this era of Daredevil, I think it's a fun read. So, okay, what is everyone's favorite issue from this episode? Probably either the the first Exterminators or the Avengers issue. Okay, okay. Um, I like the Avengers issue a lot. Um, but I gotta give it to the second Exterminators issue. It's just mm. so much fun, and just like here's some pop cultures, throw it at the wall, <laughs> like um, Pepsi, fruit pies, go. And I really, really enjoyed Bogdanov's artwork. I would, I would argue 
that of all the artists in this episode, John Bogdanoff is the best. So I think as far as being an, an Inferno issue, Exterminators 1 probably is the one that stands out for me as, as best. Personal mm-hmm. favorite, I, I like the Daredevil issue. It's weird, it's wacky, <laughs> goofy. And and shout out to Chad Bowers, because I know he likes that issue too. Um, but but I, I just think it's fun. But But I think probably in terms of being part of this overarching event, probably Exterminators 1. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Liam, thank you so much for joining us. We really, <laughs> really appreciate it. Yo, thanks for having me on, and uh, thanks for having me do Inferno. Though again, I feel like <laughs> now I need to go find my old Inferno so I can get some more Madeline Pryor in my life because that's you know her and Sinister. That's what this whole crossover was for me. Sure. And I'm like, I got none of that this oh, in any of these, but. I was it was fun to talk about and honestly I, I don't think I would have ever caught either this Avengers or Daredevil on my own you know like I think I would have missed them entirely even so in collection in the collected yeah. versions you have to buy like a whole separate trade paperback just to get these issues they're not in Crazy. like the main I mean I get it but also I I'm glad I read those yeah so so you're saying there is a severe lack of underboob here is what you're telling us <laughs> however you want to put it I'm not here to determine <laughs> for people what it is you know all right. Uh, thank you, sir. And please tell them where they can find you otherwise. Yes. Of course, uh, we're all over at cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X.com. I'm on uh, the you know flagship podcast over there, uh, of course, but also Horror Business and Cinema Smorgasbord. And uh, there's also writing over there, which I've done some of. And my co-host on Horror Business, Justin Lohr, has done some of. And Trey's done some in the past. Uh, so you Ooh. should check those out as well. Uh, and of I course, I have... <laughs> well, right now, not a lot of people are writing, but that's fine. We we do more podcast stuff than we do writing. Uh, and of course, I have a, a t-shirt uh, business I run with my, my man, Justin Miller, uh, called Rough Cut Fan Club. So if you head over to roughcutfanclub.com, you can check that out as well. Yeah, we didn't mention it earlier, but Liam is the, the big Cinepunk's daddy. So. That's right. Uh, I'm your podcast daddy. <laughs> podcast papa. Oh, oh yeah, no, go that's for the even creepier. So I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> he 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 pays us in t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, and love. And love. <laughs> is, is that what the beatings are? Uh, sure. <laughs> um, I should have a meeting for yeah. for my sort of <laughs> not not just a participant, but also a client moment. Uh, I always get positive comments from people when I wear my rough cut t-shirt. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. And of course, you can find us um, on Cinepunks. We are proud members of the Cinepunks podcasting group. Uh, but you can reach out to us at tombofideas at gmail.com. Uh, our Twitter is at tombofideas. Our Instagram is at tombofideas. Um, what are our social networks are we on? Facebook, facebook.com slash tomb of ideas. And man, you could tell when we do five issues, I start getting <laughs> loopy. <laughs> yeah, but please reach out to us. Let us know what you think of the event so far. Uh, what do you think of whether it's Daredevil 262 or Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man art or anything in between? We'd love to hear your thoughts on it, too. We'll be happy to talk Fair, about that yeah. on the air. Um, we actually do have feedback. <laughs> oh, cool. Uh, I think Barry left us something. Hold on. Barry's nice. 
Barry is nice. Yeah. So uh, Barry Reese reached out to us on Facebook, a uh, friend of the show, and he said, good start to the series, guys. I've been rereading all of X-Factor, so I read the Inferno issues recently. This is definitely one of the better X crossovers, so I'll be looking forward to the rest of your coverage. Thank you, Barry. Um, you gave, you, you guys gave him lots of X on this on this particular episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Barry, of course, being a the an author, uh, go pick out some pick up some of his books. He does great stuff. Yes. Um. Yeah. I'm really I'm really liking the crossover. Yeah. And and, and this is uh, and I think this was off mic too. But I, I said to Liam that the books we talked about this time are sort of dancing around the edges of Inferno. That that we're not no. quite in the middle of things yet. Uh. But I think that's about to change. Uh. Where we're headed next, we're gonna get. Uh, some more Spider-Man, of course, uh, and we get more Exterminators, but we get a Fantastic Four issue, we got a New Mutants issue coming up, and I think those are going to start pushing us more toward uh, what most people think of as Inferno. Well, I was going to say, once it gets going, it's very, I think it's very fun. I don't know how people remember this crossover, but I always thought these these issues were a lot of fun to read. All right, Tomb Believers. Um, you do have homework for right. our next episode. As I just alluded to, I didn't give any issue numbers, which I probably should have. But <laughs> And that is Spectacular Spider-Man, number 146, Fantastic Four, 322, Web of Spider-Man, number 47, X-Terminators, number 3, and New Mutants, number 71. Right, so another jam-packed issue of Tomb of... episode, rather, of Tomb of Ideas. Uh, pretty broad variety of titles again. Uh, we should be... We're definitely getting some mutants in that one, so I think I think it's going to tie in more towards Inferno than, say, like, you know, the Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four stuff. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and... But until then, Tomb Believers, bye-bye. Bye! See ya! You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Movers, Excelsior! Ha <laughs> ha ha ha!